This is Neil Rockind. I'm the host of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And week in and week out, we feature some of the very best criminal defense lawyers, very best civil trial lawyers anywhere in the country. We pick their brains. We talk about war stories. If you like the content, subscribe and like. We've got thousands upon thousands of views on our YouTube videos. We've got thousands of, of listens and likes and shares on the, the podcast which you can get on any platform, anywhere, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And today is no exception. I've got an incredible guest, Mark Shiner. Mark, welcome to the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Thank you. Nice to do it. My pleasure. So, um, Mark, tell me, tell me about your career and how you ended up getting involved in, in, uh, in criminal defense and trial work. Originally, I was a prosecutor in Palm Beach County. Uh, after about a year and a half, I went into homicide. I did primarily first degree murder cases as a prosecutor. I originally wanted to be a defense lawyer and work for uh, some high powered lawyers in Fort Lauderdale and they all convinced me to be a prosecutor first. And uh, I stayed longer than I wanted to, but uh, it actually turned into a very good, a, a good job and a good career because I enjoyed prosecuting murder cases and uh, stayed longer because I had pretty much full discretion to do whatever I thought was right. Um, and then eventually I left and went in business with uh, my wife, Heidi Perlette. We became uh, business partners as well. And I've been defending people uh, for the last 23 years, approximately. Is your practice always been in Florida and always been in, in Palm Beach County? Yeah, it's, it's always been in uh, Florida as a defense lawyer um, and prosecutor, always in Palm Beach County. Uh, however, it's not exclusively in Palm Beach County. We go out throughout the state of Florida on serious cases and uh, federal cases, as you know, could be anywhere in the country. Is the is the the Rudolph case was that the first case in which you've had the chance to have a case of yours covered from gavel to gavel, or have there been others? No, I've I've had other cases on Court TV previously, even going back to uh, the year two thousand uh, when I was a prosecutor. Uh, I was involved in. One of the highest profile cases in Palm Beach County where a young man um, was accused of killing a school teacher, one of the first school shootings actually in, in the United States. And it was a 13 year old uh, young boy who actually shot a very well liked and loved teacher in a middle school. And uh, that was televised throughout the United States and actually in many other countries. What do you think about, um, what do you think about televised trials? television and cameras in the courtroom. Are you for it? Are you against it? Is it dependent on the case? I think it's great. I, I love that the public gets to see what's really happening, what we do in the trenches every day. I, I think it's so important to instill trust in the community um, that they really see for themselves, not what they're reading in the newspaper or, or hearing a blurb on the news, uh, that they actually get to see for themselves what the truth is from, from gavel to gavel if they want. And they don't have to rely on somebody else. So I think it's phenomenal. I, I wish federal courts were open, you know, except for espionage or, or high sensitive cases. I wish they were open too, because the public has a right to know and see what's happening. And I think people would have more trust in the court system if they were able to see trials on a regular basis. Uh, so Mark, I agree with you. And something that dawned on me to, to, to ask you, I, I was a prosecutor for a short period of time and I think this, my style and approach to prosecuting and trying to trying cases is a, is different. It's more evolved uh, than it was when I was a prosecutor. I was probably more of a probably prosecuted less with a scalpel and more with a with a butcher cleaver. I don't know that my style was very nuanced. Um, is your style the same? Is it different? Than when you were than when you were a prosecutor trying those uh, those murder cases. Um, yeah, I think as as we get older, we uh, we practice a little smarter and uh, learn some more techniques on how to communicate better with the jury. Um, I, I don't really get nervous uh, in front of our courtroom. I actually rather be in front of a thousand people than talk one on one. I feel more comfortable in a crowd. <laughs> okay, so, I, so it's, enjoy, it's enjoyable to to do it on either side, but. Um, I, I think as a defense lawyer, we have to be more aggressive. We have to be more in tune um, with our clients' needs because um, we don't represent the public. We represent an individual. 
so I think we have to be way more aggressive in order to get our points across. Uh, as a prosecutor, you wouldn't you bring in the good, bad, and the ugly. On our side, we're pretty much bringing in what helps our client. Right. I think Gerald Shargo once said that if the criminal justice system is a search for the truth, um, he's not going to be part of the search party. So, which I thought was uh, pretty telling. Um, so tell me about the, the Travis Rudolph case. So first of all, t tell me a little bit about who Travis Rudolph was. Give us the background about the case. And then, of course, I know that you were ultimately hired and retained and defended the case. Um, but tell us how you, you know, you, how you got involved and what you thought when you got into the case. When I, when I first got hired, I, I didn't know who Travis Rudolph was. I, I certainly read a little blurb in the news about him that he got arrested. Um, but that name didn't ring a bell to me. I, I didn't know anything about his career at Florida State as a football player um, or even in the NFL, his short stint in the NFL. I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about him. Uh, didn't really matter. I, I didn't really care who he was. I just wanted to meet him. And uh, he, he was he was just a, a young man who was who was lost in the system, who never been arrested before, never been accustomed to uh, being locked down. He was put. He was actually put in isolation by the jail uh, because they thought he was somewhat of a celebrity, a high-profile person. They didn't want anyone to hurt him. So for many months, he was in isolation and just just torture. I mean, brutal in a cell 24 hours a day. Um, it was just very, very bad. And eventually, uh, I convinced the jail to put him in general population because that that, that was just cruel and unusual. But the most important thing about Travis is when I asked him what happened, he just laid out the facts from the moment I met him. It's exactly the same story he told the jury. Nothing changed. Um, I didn't even have the evidence. I didn't have any discovery. I didn't have the reports, the the videos, the audio tapes. That young man was on target uh, with with every single thing. It was I was very impressed with him. Uh, even though he was new to the criminal justice system, he believed from day one he was going to be found not guilty. It was a pleasure to have a client that I could convince to trust the system. Because uh, as corny as it may sound, I, I, I believe in the system. I, I, I think overall it works, at least the cases I've been involved in on both sides. I, I believe it works. Uh, Travis was, had unwavering faith, um, which was amazing. Mm. Yeah, that, that is. So he never thought about taking a plea, which is... Never. So mm. that, that, and that just gives you carte blanche to, you know, to defend them without having to, to kind of look over your shoulder and, and worry about, a, a, you know, did your client want a plea deal? Did you talk him out of it, et cetera? Um, let me ask you this. T t he was charged with murder. Was it murder or conspiracy to commit murder? First degree murder and three attempted first degree murders. Tell us the facts. Tell us what the prosecution was alleging occurred. And then let's get into the actual trial. Um, their, their allegations was that Travis was not acting in self-defense, that he shot at four men who were in a car who were leaving uh, the neighborhood where he lived and that he was shooting them just for the hell of it. Basically said he was a monster and was shooting 39 times with an assault rifle for no reason at all. And that wasn't the guy I met. That wasn't the guy that I became to become very fond of as, as a human being who's persevered. And we'll talk about that, about many tragedies he suffered in his life. Um, he has a spirit and a will to survive and to be successful and, and a positive attitude on life, which is amazing based on the things he's been through. Even in the jail, he never had any animosity towards the, the jailers, towards the prosecutors. Uh, he was disappointed throughout the proceedings because he was trying to get this trial over with fast because he knew he was not guilty. And I said, Travis, I need to do everything I can to protect you. We're not ready for trial. And it was one disappointment after the other. Mm -hmm. But no, that he was he's an amazing person to to help. So how did the prosecution come up with this theory, if you if you can share that, that out of the blue, he just woke up and decided to take out an assault rifle and fire at a at a carload of, of men that were in his 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 area in his his uh near where he lived. Well it all it all started with the uh the producer of this show was Detective Vandalin, the, the lead the lead detective. She did two 10-minute interviews of two of the uh, young men who came to attack my client, did not look into the case at all, never did follow up whatsoever, arrested him. 
the moment he walked out of his house at the request of the police, put handcuffs on him and charged him with murder and attempted murder and did no follow-up throughout the uh, next two years prior to trial. Um, the, the, the prosecutors rubber stamped our investigation. You, you can't even call it an investigation. Uh, someone in the police academy would do a better job. Uh, it, it was the most shoddy work I've ever seen. Uh, and I've seen a lot of shoddy work. I've seen a lot yeah, of good of course. work, a lot of good police work, but this one, this was embarrassing. Uh, I, I don't know how anyone rubber stamped it and, and said, this is a good case. Uh, All right. So you gave in this case, I want to go through it. You gave in this case, such a memorable closing argument. Um, I thought awkwardly you had to begin your closing holding a microphone, which I've never really seen. Um, but you, 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 you began at the far side of the courtroom. Um, it, it seemed almost as far as you could get from the jury, by, but still being in where in the, in the well of the courtroom, so to speak. And you began with a phrase that we've heard multiple times over, which was hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. Um, tell me about that as the beginning of your closing and then and let's start there. Tell me about that as the beginning of your closing. Well, well my partner and, and wife, Heidi Perlette, did the opening. Um, and I, I didn't know if she was going what theme she was going to use. Um, we didn't discuss it. And she started out with hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. And it really sums up the case because the woman scorned, um, Dominique Jones, the person who put all this in motion, uh, basically... Um, is a woman scorned and 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 created hell on my client and his family and, and almost cost him his life and then almost cost him his freedom for the rest of his life. So I, I thought that really summed the case up. Um, I, I I don't I don't write my closings out. I just speak from the heart. Uh, I've done it my whole career and I had tons of notes of what the witnesses may have said. I brought them up to the podium with me, but I didn't I didn't know what I was going to say or how I was going to say it until it happened and. I just took the mic and I was going to stand behind my client and maybe put my hands on his shoulders and say, but then it just came out. Hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. Mm -hmm. And I just figured that was really the theme of our case. So that's, it was powerful. And interestingly, you weave that from there, you weave that into what a, how their theory, the case made no sense. It was like a bad Sopranos episode, um, which I thought was a really interesting you know, really interesting way to sort of, they're calling your client essentially a monster and a murderer. And here you are sort of saying that, that this would, this script, if it were written by, the, by a, a writer, I think you even said that, wouldn't have made it out of the, the editing room. Right. Tell me about that. Tell me why, why you said that and tell me how that reference came to mind. It, you know, it looked like it was a hit. It, it really did. I mean, I, I grew up in a rough area in Brooklyn and, uh, was privileged enough to go to college and, and, and become a lawyer and, and, and always wanted to help people and hate when people take advantage of other people. Uh, it just really honestly felt like the, the, these men were ordered by Dominique Jones, the, the lady who had no hell had no fury, like Dominique Jones. Uh, she put a hit on Travis because he kicked her out of the house or her multi-million dollar possibility of him making the NFL to support her. And support her brother and the friends because these these guys don't work. Uh, they're 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 getting plus she's getting plastic surgeries. She's getting designer goods. Doesn't even have a job. Um, she's just a gold digger. And uh, the really I think that came across. And the fact that it was almost unfathomable that these young guys would just do what she told them to do. And we know from some text messages saying shoot his shit up and. Um, the brother's telling her first that I'm going over there and Travis is a dead man walking. These are mobster talk. I mean, mm -hmm. right. I mean, we usually don't even get this unless it's a federal wiretap. But I mean, this was, you can imagine what they really said because they were using face uh, FaceTime and they were mm -hmm. using WhatsApp and other things that we can't even trace or the police can't even follow. But we saw little glimpses that I really thought it was like a hit, uh, a professional hit. So I just spoke from my heart. I, I, I thought that that's what they were doing. And, and Travis was a miracle that he survived and his family survived and he saved his life and his brother's life. I, I truly believe that. How bad on a scale of one to 10 was the police investigation in this case? A 10. 
Now, not all police officers were, were, were atrocious. The, the, the guy with the dog, Agent McMichael, who has a dog who searches for guns, he did what he was told. He was only brought to one scene. He wasn't brought to where the, the guy's final resting place of their car was because there they dump guns too, I'm convinced, but no one checked anything there. Uh, so he did a good job. The firearms examiner, uh, Mr. Palma, he's, he's an excellent witness. Um, the, the, some of the West Palm Beach police officers who responded first, who were shocked at uh, Keyshawn Jones and, and Christopher Lowe were hiding behind a fence and they weren't screaming for the police. Hey, 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 come help us. Those right. guys noticed something was wrong. So they, they, there's a plenty of good police work in this case, but, but the detectives uh, and the detective supervisors didn't tell crime scene to search anywhere. Don't look for guns. Don't do this. They did nothing. And then when they found one of the guns within hours, they still didn't do anything. It was just shocking that nobody cared. It was like, I'm going to win this case at all costs. And hopefully this guy can't afford a lawyer and he can't, he can't fight the case and he's going to take a plea. But they so were... was Detective Vanderlyn, she was the lead detective on the case? She was. So um, we're going to play a clip. I'm not going to, we're going to play a clip uh, of her closing, uh, excuse me, of your cross-examination of her. Um, and then we're going to talk about it. Why don't you question any, why don't you go back to Keyshawn Jones and ever question him about that and say, why'd you park a block and a half away? Why don't you have another interview with him after the first one? Because the content of the interview and the information that I was able to receive from him was very concise. It was very specific and it provided me with the information that I needed to conduct my investigation. Okay, well, that, that sounds like gobbledygook. Can you explain that in English, what, what exactly you're talking about? I, I, I just... Any better than that? Can you give me examples of what you're, what you're referring to? Clear and concise and the information I needed. What does that mean? I think I was very specific in my answer, sir. Well, it's the best you can do with that one. Objection. Look like the gas station that you were at that night where the uh, Cadillac was? Yes, sir. Would you agree the Cadillac was pulled all the way up to the fence area? It was over in that direction, yes, sir. All right, and did you ever talk to a West Palm Beach police officer, the first one who arrived and at all? Did, did you ever talk to him? I know I spoke with officers on scene. I can't recall if I specifically spoke with the first officer on scene. Okay, did you ever hear from the first officer or from one of his supervisors that he passed this area going north and had to make a U-turn and actually passed it again, then backed up, and the reflection of his lights actually hit the car, and he, that's when he backed up. His blue lights hit the car, and he saw two silhouettes back here by the fence area, in front of the fence area. Never heard that? I don't recall that. That, that could be important, right? It could be. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. It could be. Okay. It could be someone possibly hiding something. Behind the fence, right? There's no evidence of that, sir. Well, how could you find evidence if you don't even bother looking? How, do you, do you, does it magically just show up? No. So how can you say there's no evidence of that? Because you didn't look, there's no evidence of that. But you don't really know if anything was back there because you never bothered checking, right? If there's no evidence, no information that evidence exists, I don't look for it. I don't waste taxpayers' money to look for things that I have no information exists. You found out there was a gun, at least on April 8th, that belonged to Tyler Robinson. Now you know the guys in the car lied to you at the scene, right? No. Oh, they didn't lie to you about no one having a gun. That does not mean that people lied to me. Oh, okay. Is what I'm saying. That means they were truthful. I, right? In your book. It's really... It's funny. You're laughing. Not funny at all. So tell me about the your cross-examination of her. Mm -hmm. Were you fired up to cross-examine her? Were you just, when you got up there, were you just ready to, I mean, it seemed to me, I think I told you this in our pre-discussion, our discussion before we, we started the podcast, I felt like you were a physical lawyer. I felt like you were a football player ready to take a, uh, a three-point stance. You looked like you were ready to just, you wanted to push the podium aside and just barrel at her. Not to say that you would, but I, I could honestly say it didn't seem like you wouldn't. 
Well, th thanks for the compliment. So I, I, I guess you, you, you felt my pain. Um, I, I was angry at her for falsely accusing this guy with no evidence and ruining his life and, and, and producing this whole fiasco of a, of a show, so to speak, which is not really a show. It's real life. And it's very sad. Um, I was tired. I mean, I'm, I'm getting older. The, the, uh, this was a very tiring trial. You, you picked up very astutely that it was, that it's physical, uh, not just the mental. I was, I was exhausted, but uh, I knew that the jury needed to see who this lady was. And, and only across, I, I think I did five hour cross on her and maybe two and a half or three hours the first day. And then the next day, a couple more hours, I could have went five more hours. Um, but I think the jury got a flavor of, of how disingenuous she was, how unknowledge, lack of knowledge that she had, the lack of caring and, and, and what a ridiculous investigation this was. And, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't own up to anything. She wouldn't own up to a single mistake she made. And that was infuriating. And then lying that there's no database for firing, finding guns and who bought them. Uh, she was just disingenuous throughout the cross, and I wanted. She seems smug, and it, she seems so smug, and and arrogant. Like the look on her face at times, and the tone of her voice was almost like, "How how dare you question me?" That's how it came across. And that's um, what I felt. I felt that. Yeah, I, I felt that she was angry that I was asking her these questions. Um, but I, I, I didn't care because I got this young guy's life on the line. Right. And she needed to. She, what was the most meaningful it. part of that cross-examination to you? What was, was there a point during your cross that you can share with me where you said, I, 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 I got her like ever. I, I got her where you're looking over and you just feel like you, you've got it. Was there a point like that during the cross? No, I just, I did not, it's hard to tell when you're doing it because you're really in the battle and the heat of the moment. And I, I just felt her true colors came out that, that she had no idea what she was doing, that she didn't care. There was no follow-up. And, and I really believe she had a notch on her belt and, and wanted to keep it there that she convicted of a football player and arrested a football player and uh, thought it was fun in games. And, and she hid the evidence. I mean, it was one of the worst discovery cases I've ever had. One of the hardest it took her six months to get me the actual audio tape for the 911 call. Um, so yeah, the cross, uh, it was, I was a little upset with her for, or very upset with her for, for hiding the ball with everything and charging somebody with no evidence and, and lack of evidence. And, you know, I don't think there was anything that was totally highlighted except that she didn't give a damn and didn't do any work to really prove or disprove her theory. What did she hide the ball on? Well, like I said, the 911 call disappeared for six months. You can get those in days, hours usually. Mm -hmm. uh, the phone records of Tyler Robinson took almost two years to get. We had to continue this case because she refused to do it. Uh, the phone records from my client, the phone records from uh, Chris Lowe. She never even got his phone, even though in deposition she told me she did. Uh, and lied on, she lied over and over in deposition and makes up stories. Um, just getting videos of the car of the Cadillac that they were driving away in. There was a video from the city of West Palm. She edited that before she gave it to us. And I've never seen anything like it. She decided what was important and edited things. Hmm. Uh, there are so many examples. I, it was the most frustrating case to put together uh, because number one, I didn't trust her. Number two, she was hiding evidence. And number three, she was just trying to get this guy to go to trial without being prepared. And I, and I refused to do it. And, and my client was upset. He wanted to go to trial, you know, in six uh -huh. months, a year. And we had to keep continuing this case. I could have continued this for another two years and, and investigated right. it. There was so right. much missing. There was guys that were given the address of where this happened by the four young men who came to accost them. She never investigated that, but I just got that a month before the trial. So I couldn't really do much with it. But many other people probably showed up that I can't prove at this point. Right. Mark, do you prepare your cross-examinations? Not really. What I, what I do is in Florida, we're lucky enough to have uh, depositions so we can question the witnesses prior to trial. Um, so in this case, we had a, not only did I have their, her deposition or all the witnesses' depositions, I also had a prior statement at a stand-your-ground hearing. So those are briefed. In case I need impeachment, I can certainly go back to the page and line number to show that they're not being truthful. But in terms of the actual questions, no, I, I don't prepare that at all. It's just, it's in my mind. It's in my head. 
So do you do you have different chapters or topics that you intend to cover and then the impeachment material available like source so that you know how to go back to it? Or is it just kind of do you just kind of flow through it and have it sort of in your head? I think a smart lawyer would have it organized. I'm not I'm not organized. It's, it's whatever. It's kind of free flowing thought. Um, I don't really know how to practice any other way. I've tried preparing. I've tried writing down questions. It, do, it doesn't work for me. I'm an active listener. I also pick mm -hmm. up what people say and try to go off of that. So I really want to know the facts so well that I, I don't need to write it down. I, I, right. I'm ready to go. Uh, Let's talk yeah. about that. You use a phrase that I've used all the time, active listening. Um, tell, me what, tell me what you mean by active listening. Well, <clears throat> when, you, when you get people on the hot seat on the witness stand, even a cop who's a professional witness who knows how to testify, supposedly, um, they're going to make mistakes and say things um, that you didn't anticipate. And if you're going off a script, and I've seen lawyers do this, I've had partners in, in, when I was a prosecutor who, who do this. They're so scripted that they can't pick up what the person's saying that could actually lead you to the next point that could actually help cross-examine somebody to the fullest. If you really listen, you can, you can then get another gem for what they just said. I, I have seen lawyers with their face in, a, in an outline where a witness says something, you know, they stop and start. They kind of, they, they, they get down a dead end of a sentence, admit to something about three quarters of the way of an admission, and then they try to backtrack. And the lawyer is so focused on the next question that, that they don't actually, they miss that. Right. As opposed to being able to jump on it and say, you know, oh, wait, 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 wait. You were just about to say, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just about to say that you didn't have any evidence. Exactly. And then you stopped yourself, right? No. Well, that's, you just said da 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 da. And then you pause and you went, well, and then you backtrack, right? Isn't that what you're about to say? I've seen lawyers just miss stuff like that. Every day. Because they've just got their, their face buried in their outline, ready to turn the page to the next subject. I agree. They're scripted and uh, they can't think on their feet. And luckily, uh, we're blessed that you and I can think on our feet and, and many other lawyers can do that. Uh, but it's a tremendous advantage. And, you know, I, I'm looking at it like I'm in my living room and I'm talking to the witness and I got a couple of neighbors here. I'm not going to read a script if I'm talking to somebody in my <laughs> living room. Um, but that's, that's the best a wonderful way analogy. Tell me about the jury. Are you uh, were you were you, so you tried the case with your wife? Were you watching? Were you watching the jury throughout? Do you do you? peek at them out of your eye. Um, how, do you, how do you judge how the jury, who's ultimately our audience, um, how they're reacting to what you're doing? Well, the easiest way to do it is when I'm cross-examining a witness, uh, especially in this case, because the cross-exams were extraordinarily long, a lot longer than normal. Normal, the, the, I normally don't do a five-hour cross of a lead cop. Um, so a lot of times I've had eye contact, uh, even with the civilian witnesses, with the jury. Uh, I'd ask the question and I'd look at the jury because I'm not paying attention to the witness because I'm so disgusted with their nonsense and their ridiculous responses. I ask the question and, and stare right at the jury and I'll make an eye contact with a lot of them. And they're saying with their eyes, hey, I got you, brother. I feel your pain, brother. I, 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 <laughs> this is ridiculous. And you could see that in the jury's eyes. So it was just the nonverbal communication was there um, from even, even from the start of jury selection, which you know is so important uh, that they build, that we build trust because we're not walking in there like the prosecutors who already have mm -hmm. pres presumption of trust. We're walking in there with the presumption of, hey, you're sliding something by us. So it was so important that they believe us from the beginning. We don't mislead them. Um, so I, I watched the jury the whole time because yeah, that's, I don't care about the cameras. I don't care about the audience. Those, I don't care about the judge or the prosecutors. Those are the 12 people we need to convince. Um, and part so, yeah. of this, part of the juror's perception, in my experience, it, it comes from, you know, from the, from mass, you know, pulp fiction and mass culture, pop culture, comes from um, television shows like Law and Order. And if you were to ask a juror, what do you think of what? How do those shows portray prosecutors? They portray them as dogged and determined, and 
ethical and and high-minded right um and then they and then you turn to one juror and say how do they portray the defense lawyers and they all have the same look they all laugh oh you know sleazy and underhanded and you know win at all costs and um and something you said is so important that is that we have to earn the the jurors trust from the start Right. We don't we don't have the ability to we don't have like the 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 state seal behind us that prosecutors have. They don't or they think that that we're the good guy. Um, so I want to ask with that as a backdrop, how did you transition in this case from being in jury selection where they you know, we, we talked about how we start off as a defense lawyer, maybe a little bit behind the 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 trustworthiness of the prosecutor. But then shifted to a point where, as you're taught, you're literally, you're the juror's mouthpiece to, to question these witnesses the way that they want the witnesses questioned. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, in this jurisdiction, the prosecutors are also wearing badges, little lapel pins, like they're police officers. Um, I almost made a motion to keep that out in the beginning of the trial. Uh, but then, you know, I, I used it against them in closing. I mean, the people in TV couldn't see this, but the jurors knew this because they're all, all three prosecutors are wearing lapel pins shaped like a badge. And I, and I found that very offensive. They're not cops. They represent the public. And um, I, I just turned it against them saying there's a thin blue line and, and these guys rubber stamped what they did because they, you know, they basically think they're cops as well. And uh, it was just we really do have to gain the trust uh, of the jury and, and, and lead them through this and guide them about what the law is. And, and I, and I spent a long time at the, in the law uh, in this case about self-defense because the, the real bottom line in this case was at the moment of truth, when Travis shot 39 times, the prosecutors have to disprove he was not acting in self-defense. They have to prove that he basically shot for no reason at all, beyond a reasonable doubt that he was not justified and, and I knew from the beginning of this case that that was a virtually impossible burden. So all we had to do was try this case, show the jury the witnesses that the prosecutor wants you to rely on, uh, that he was a, a vicious, cold-blooded killer. Like, there's no way you would believe these people. Um, so it, 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 to me, it wasn't really that hard. It was just, it was exhausting, but it wasn't like a hard case to win because I, I felt that it was easy. Have you ever had the experience where it's, so the jurors, when you're cross-examining the detective, for example, or some of the witnesses, you're you're getting their feedback, you're getting their vibe. Um, have you ever had cases where you aren't getting that vibe, where you're not getting that feedback from them? And, of course. And how, how lonely does that feel when you're in the well and you don't have that same vibe from the jury? It's like, yeah, you do the best you can. It's like, I didn't make these facts up. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just presenting what I believe is the truth. Uh, in this case, a lot of the jurors turn their backs on the witnesses, and, and several of them won't even look at them, which I usually don't see. Uh, they actually disregarded them as a human being, and and wouldn't even they just turn completely away from them, which was kind of unusual. You don't see that very often. Uh, very, but you're right; it's very lonely when you when you're up very there. Very lonely. Don't believe you, or you have a witness who's uh, not credible. Are you were you given were you given voir dire in this case? Um, were you given attorney conducted voir dire? And did you have, um, uh, did you use questionnaires or was it all, um, you know, were the jury consultants? Walk me through that if you would. Um, yeah, and I've, I've used the jury consultant once or twice before. Um, not a big fan of that because once I had feedback on a homicide case that the jurors after the trial said, why was this person watching me so carefully and writing notes? And mm. it kind of backfired a little bit. Um, still won the case, but it bothered some of the jurors. So I, I really don't try to use that very often. Um, and, and my jury consultant is my wife and my client, Travis. Was, <laughs> he was an active participant as well. Yeah. And and there was no questionnaires in this case at all. Uh, the judge allowed uh, four hours uh, for each side to question. It took four days uh, to do this because there was many people for cause. They, they couldn't spend a week or two, three weeks in trial. Uh, it was a holiday weekend coming up uh, during this trial. and. Uh, uh, I just had an outline uh, of my major points, pretty much the same outline in every case. Uh, I could write it out in 10 minutes. Um, there was not really anything mysterious. I just really wanted to convey to the jury what the law was and get them to commit. They'll follow the law. Uh, and they got it. They got it very quick, That what the state's burden was. And 
Uh, everyone agreed. And uh, every this is one of the most amazing cases because every one of the jurors is who we wanted. Every All 12 of the jurors, there wasn't a single juror on there that we had a doubt about. It was almost like we we got to pick them ourselves. So huh. it, was, it was amazing that we, we had every juror on there that we wanted. It was great. So I'm going to fast forward to uh, Travis ended up testifying, um, testified well. Um, and, you know, it's, it, you know, people often say, well, how come if you didn't testify, you must you know, be hiding something. Or if you testified, he's, you know, um, why would a person who's innocent not get on the stand? And, and the fact of the matter is, is that he, he's innocent. He acted in self-defense. He got up there and told the story. And I thought he, he did a commendable job. But the prosecutors are still calling him a liar, right? They're still they're still challenging him. They're looking for any little any little contradiction or disagreement to, to latch on to. Um, without going into to the the decision for him to testify or not, was it your feeling that when you got done with direct and cross that he had that he had really carried? I mean, not to use a football phrase, but that he had just carried the ball really well in in, in this case as a as a defense witness. Um, he, he, I was, I was a little disappointed in his testimony, to be honest with you. He was not emotional enough for me. He, he keeps his feelings inside. He's I saw that so many tragic things in his life, but, but he's also an abused man, uh, which I didn't realize until the trial started about how many times this girl hit him. The neighbor saw him constantly getting beat up by his girlfriend and Travis thought it was okay that, that, he, that he deserved it somehow or, he, he really was an abused man. So just because he's an NFL football player and a star college football player, that doesn't mean um, he's a tough guy and he's strong as, as heck. And Hercules, uh, this, this, he's, he's kind of a sad case that he kind of believed, at least he used to, that it was okay for someone to lay their hands on him, a man or a woman, because that's not okay for anyone. Uh, so I was a little disappointed in his testimony, but that's who Travis is. And he became the captain of his college football team at, at Florida State. And he's learned to be very stoic, keep everything in, not very emotional. Um, but when the verdict came, tears were Were you flying. trying? Were there things you were doing? Were you trying to encourage him front to, to be more emotive from the stand? Um, or, or did you just, I mean, were you, were you trying in any way to kind of get him to open up more, to, to be more feeling, you know, to be more emotional on the, on the stand? I, I was, and I and I couldn't I couldn't break through, um, and we didn't we didn't really practice much. Normally, I'll spend hours with clients, sometimes days, weeks, months, years. Sometimes, uh, Travis from day one uh, was ready to go. He was ready to testify. Never had to tell him how to testify, what to say, or how to correct things. He wasn't that kind of client. Um, but it's just who he is. He's a, he's a quiet guy. And he's, and he's been through a lot. You said he's had a lot of trauma in his life. Oh boy. Yeah. His father was tragically killed the year of the draft, a couple of days before the NFL draft, he was shot in the head uh, while he was working, fixing an air conditioner. Somebody supposedly shot him by accident uh, his, while he was in jail, a very close nephew of his uh, passed away in a car accident. He couldn't go to the funeral that killed him. Um, it was like a brother to him. Uh, this, this case happened. Uh, he, he suffered a lot of violence and, 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 and tragedies in his life. Um, um, but yeah, just, just, just sad. I, you know, I, I thought he would be a little more emotional, but you know what, that's who Travis is. And, mm -hmm. and, and the jury saw that and he, he was, he is who he is and you don't want to paint them as somebody he's not. So I, th I thought he did a good job, but I was hoping he'd be a little more emotional. I know right. you or I, if we're charged with murder and a prosecutor is making up fake stuff and they're lying and trying to get us, I, I'd be furious. You'd be furious. Of course, of course. But I also, you know, I'm not a minority. I don't know what it's like to be prejudged to that degree just based upon my appearance. You never know if how close, I'm sure he's been prejudged and has been the subject of prejudice, some that he's seen and felt, some that he's just assumed or, you know. Right. And you're on the stand and you're telling, and you're like, how, you know. I can imagine also trying to keep it in and not lose it for fear of lending, you know what I mean? Lending to the, the stereotype or to, so 
such a tough thing when when you have somebody who's who's both sitting next to you and on the stand because you know the jurors are looking at your client the whole time of course and they're looking at him the whole time wondering you know what are you supposed to do look at the jury not look at the jury look up stare at him don't stare at him you know what i mean write a note don't write a note um look i'm i'm, I'm thrilled for him uh and very very pleased for you that no matter how he came across, he came across genuine enough that the jury didn't prejudge him and instead um, um, trusted what he had to say because uh, that's the result that was warranted in the case. So, you know, you don't want someone losing it and then having the jury end up, you know, looking and thinking maybe we had this guy wrong. Right. So I mean, the, the, the impeachment of him was very minor and, you know, even the right. even his brother and his mother. So I, I think the prosecutors did a very poor job and, in cross-examining. So I, right, I don't think it really right. mattered how he came across. He came across genuine. I, I, and I, I think, I think that's true. I think he came, he, he looked tight, but he also looked like someone who wasn't straining. You know what I mean? That tightness usually comes across. People are straining to find the answers. Right. I didn't think he came across like he was straining to find the answers. You know? And he didn't. And he didn't say constantly like their witnesses did say. Oh, I didn't understand the question. Can you repeat it? Or what'd you say? I didn't. I didn't understand. Right. Like they're trying to buy time to figure it out. Exactly. Yeah, he just gave the answer that he believed was correct. Um, so, tell me a little bit about your style of of lawyering, um, your cross examination style. How would you describe it? Um, I'm a big believer in the truth. I really am. It, it may sound cliche that a defense lawyer wants the truth, but um, I really don't practice any different than when I was a prosecutor. I, 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 I want the truth out. And if I'm going to trial, it's because I believe my client's not guilty. I'm not, I'm not going to trial for fun or, 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 or to get experience or, or make money. It's really to get the truth out. So if I really believe in somebody wholeheartedly, I am going to argue wholeheartedly. And cross-examination, my style is just me. I'm, you know, I tell young lawyers, just be yourself. Just be who you are. And ask the kind of questions that you would want the answers to, so you can really judge somebody's character and whether or not they're forthright and whether or not they saw what they saw. Um, I'm just being me, and you know sometimes I may say a stupid thing in cross examination because it's not planned out or written, and um, I just do my best, or I'll make mistakes sometimes. So we we all do, and then I just, in this case, I just owned up to them. I told the jury, look, I made mistakes, but the detective won't say she made a mistake. Right. I thought you were very, I thought your cross was all, I thought it was also compelling. I thought part of the reason why I thought your cross was compelling was I could tell you were emotionally into it. You were physically and emotionally into it. I said that a couple of times, there were a couple of moments where you, 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 you almost put like compound questions to, to the witnesses, but in a way that wasn't like, you know, truly compound. It was almost like, come on, you know, you're lying. Why don't you just admit it? Right. I mean, you did a bad right. investigation. Just fess up to it already. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was what I was trying to get out without you know? saying that and get a right. to. Right. Um, I even said to her, I said, are you kidding? Is this for real? Are you joking? <laughs> right. Are you serious? <laughs> this, this is what you're trying to tell us? Um, I would and, say that to a friend. I mean, if my friend was exactly there, told me not that's how to it came thing. across. What are you talking about? Mark, it came across like that because it, it, it didn't come across like you were trying to pull a fast one and put, you know, two facts together. And it, it came across like you were just genuinely like, come on, like, you know, like this is this is it. Like, this is what you're giving us. This is the investigation you did. You didn't do, you know, it came across like that, like exactly like how you would grow one of your kids, for example, if they, right. you know, didn't they snuck in the house late. You're like, you know, well, I was just checking the window. No, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean, come on! Your body's hat, your 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 head is in the window. It's coming from the outside. Your feet are still outside. You were checking the window, right? I mean, think I'm so, stupid. Maybe I was born right, yesterday. Right, of course. Right, right. So, let me ask you this: I noticed that you have a um, you did a, a a tweet recently that you you tweeted about another, almost like a teaser about another case coming to Palm Beach County. Uh, so I presume that really is a case you're going to be trying um, soon. Um, do you, do you do that frequently? Do you sort of put out, you know, teasers or, um, never, never, never. I, 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 I opened up a Twitter page in 2011, didn't know how to use it. I still don't know how to use it. I don't have an Instagram or I do, but I don't even know what it is. I don't do anything on Facebook. I, I had no idea this stuff really existed. Um, but I just messed around after the trial because my, my wife actually, 
was with my daughter and 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 they went on a mother daughter trip and, and I was home by myself and I had nothing to do. So I, I just went on Twitter and figured out how to use it. So I'm like, all right, let me put a couple of things on here. And and then I I just we have a we do have a case coming up, uh, Heidi and I next month where a police officers accused of raping a high powered lawyer. And once again, horrible investigation, perjury from from the alleged victims is going to come out. And just crazy stuff again. And and, and here we go again. It, it doesn't uh-huh. end. Um, so I, I did put that out because I'm hoping the national uh, the media covers this because it was great. I, I had no idea the power y'all have in, in podcasts and in filming trials. I, I was oblivious to it. Even during the trial, I was oblivious to it. But afterwards, I'm, I'm getting people, I was getting feedback from, I can't tell you how many police officers called my office during the trial that I found out afterwards and chiefs and and, and emails from prosecutors throughout the country and, and, and police officers and police chiefs and, and, and congratulating us and, and applauding us for doing this trial while it was going on. I'm People like, really reacted to you well. They, um, in, the, in the live chats and the chats and comments, and um, they, 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 resp- they, re- they responded to you. I mean, and I, you could tell. Um, but I've been so, doing this for 35 years. This is nothing different. This is everything. I get it. Uh, you know, I know. What's the old saying that someone said, you know, you're, you're looking at me after, you know, 30 years thinking, you know, like overnight I'm, success, like an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you something interesting in this case, this, this I've never experienced. And I've walked a lot of guys out on murder cases. This is the first time ever. Uh, multiple deputies who work in the courthouse and i know a lot of them you know the bailiffs but this there's probably a hundred other ones it's a very big courthouse big community here i can't tell you how many congratulated me up until today that they were rooting for travis and it also happened in the jail this i've never experienced some of my clients told me that court tv was playing the trial live in the jail hmm. uh, and they watched it from gavel to gavel they said when the verdict came in the applause from the inmates was like they were freed. Oh wow! And they also said the guards were rooting for Travis. The jail, chills. That's like a. It was amazing. It was like a movie. That's like a hair in the back of my neck kind of a feeling. Yeah. That's in the amazing. courthouse, I can't mention names, but the clerk's office, every hundreds of people were rooting for him during the trial and after the trial. It brought everyone together. I've never seen anything like it. Amazing. The prosecutors were the villains, which is yeah. kind of sad. Amazing. That was sad, but. But I, I've never seen a case bring a, commu- a courthouse and a jail community together where everyone was rooting for a defendant. And, and I told a lot of the cops in this case, especially the young ones in the courthouse, I said, sometimes the bad guys are the good guys and the good guys are the bad guys. So y'all should always keep your eyes and ears open because you never know when that happens. And what, it's a, what an amazing account of, the, of you know, who was sort of rooting for who and the exchange of the white hat. You know what I mean? I'm sure you've had people... Oh, Mark, you're on the dark side. You know what I mean? As opposed to the prosecutors think that they're white knights, you know, riding in the white badges. Horse. With badges. Right. That with badges. Fact of the matter <laughs> is, is that that a jail scene that is like it's like got a Shawshank Redemption. You know what I mean where they're all like cheering? You know what I mean? In one moment, it's amazing. amazing. I have a client who was charged with vehicular homicide, and he's in jail with no bond, and uh, he has a couple of things going on. And he was he told me that uh, two weeks ago when I talked to him, and I was shocked that they, I didn't even know they had court TV in the jail. It's amazing. Um, it's so an amazing story. I could just imagine it. That's pretty incredible. Uh, I want to leave on two, two, two notes. One, you, you, you've practiced and tried cases with your wife. And um, you, you did tell me that she's a phenomenal trial lawyer. Um, I think I asked you at one point when we just were talking about, you know, who's one of the best lawyers, you know, and I think you immediately said her. No question. So t- t- tell me, tell me why you, you would say that apart from the fact that she's your wife. She's ruthless. Um, she goes after people with a vengeance. She did it with Dominique Jones. Uh, we do most of our trials separately, uh, but we do several cases a year together. Uh, now that COVID's over, we're back in trial. And I've seen people, especially police officers, very seasoned, get off the stand. And as they're walking by, they're cursing at her. They make threats to her, which shows me that she doesn't back down from a fight either, which mm-hmm. shows you that I never want to make an impact. <laughs> She's making an impact. <laughs> Not at home. He's That's why I'm business in the courtroom because maybe I can win <laughs> once in a while. At That's home, the one place win. you get to do it, right? <laughs> That's funny. No, but but she she's 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 ruthless. She's a she's a New Yorker and uh, she loves practicing law and um, loves loves doing the right thing. And she's a former prosecutor as well. And 
you know, I, I would, I'll tell you uh, something in this case that you didn't really ask, but I believe it was a not guilty from day one. Um, my wife didn't. Heidi really kept challenging me, which was great. And I kept finding new things. And then I blew up the doorbell cam photos that showed these guys had probably guns in their pockets that I found a couple of months before trial. And every day I'm fighting to figure out how am I going to convince Heidi? If I can't convince her, I'm in trouble. So it, it was a great experience having, and we do this a lot and, and play devil's advocate with each other. So it was great having a, a wife and, and a partner who understands the stresses of a trial because it wasn't her case. I was hired, not Heidi. She did me a favor. She did Travis a favor um, by helping me. Amazing. What a great story. Um, I pictured, I pictured the, you know, almost a cartoon of you saying, you know, your record at home arguing with, with Heidi, you know, Owen, whatever. And then, you know, honey, I'm going off to court to go argue a few cases so I can actually get, get a couple of wins on the scoreboard. <laughs> That's life. Yeah, that's great. That's why it's Perlette and Shiner. Perlette is my wife, and she's number one. Even though I have more experience, she's first. Great. That's great. Mark, tell me, um, I know people who watch and listen uh, like to look up the lawyers and potentially reach out to lawyers who are on the podcast. Um, tell me uh, website. Tell me how people can reach you. Um, so let, let's start with the website. Uh, website is palmbeachdefense.com. Um, and then we're here in West Palm Beach and we have multiple lawyers here, not just myself and Heidi. We have other younger lawyers who uh, handle all kinds of cases from misdemeanors to uh, first degree murders. And I know you just you just started a uh, we've had a Twitter account, but you just started using it maybe a little bit more. What's your Twitter page? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't know. No. Uh, I think I actually saw it. Let me see if I even remember it. If not, we'll. Maybe we'll, it's just uh, my name, Mark Shiner. I, I don't really I, know. I think it might be. But you know what? I'm going to look it up real quick because I. I'll do the same. I asked. Let's see. It's. So it is at Mark Shiner. So it's at M A R C S H I N E R. And you'll see your dashing picture there uh, <laughs> at the top. And of course, you know, he hasn't pinned this tweet, but at the very at the very top is what I think is just a great use of social media, which is coming up next in a Palm Beach County courtroom as a falsely accused Miami-Dade police officer charged with rape and of a high-profile lawyer. More corruption in Palm Beach County about to be exposed next month. So uh, I got lucky. Yeah. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I just wrote what I thought was the, you know, a, that, a little blurb. That's you. That's you with a teaser. And, uh, you know, if, if they're the the opponents in this case, I'm sure that they, if they haven't seen that already, <laughs> they should know that they got a storm coming. So, right. It's coming. So Mark, I very much appreciate um, you and uh, uh, what you did for Travis Rudolph and what you are doing in ho holding some of these, uh, these detectives and police officers in check. Um, it was really great to chat with you. I, I very much appreciated you joining me, particularly as we're, you know, um, as you're in between trials and Lord knows you've probably got plenty of things to do. And I so much appreciate you taking time out uh, the hour or so you've given us here on the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And it's uh, yeah. it's fun to talk to other people who know what we're doing in the trenches. And I appreciate you doing the same thing for helping people. So thank you. You bet, man.